This is a CNIB Foundation podcast. We now have David Plank in the studio. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. Before starting our conversation, would you please introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us something about your background and relationship with CNIB? Sure. Um, I've been a uh, narrator here in the CNAB studio for uh, about five years now, I think. might actually even be longer, but five years reliably, I can remember. And uh, yeah, it's great. And otherwise, I uh, work in the corporate and television industry and uh, fly drones. Fly drones? Yeah. And where do you fly them? Not near the airport, I hope. Well, <laughs> not usually, no. Now, wherever the client wants us to fly them, I fly them for commercials. Oh, interesting. Very interesting. Well, we're here to talk about science fiction. So as I asked every other guest, let's start with a definitional question. What is science fiction to you? What is science fiction to me? I think science fiction to me... Um, It's basically the rational science story. Um, But it's an interesting question because there's a lot of stories that I like that verge on fantasy, but so long as there is some plausible scientific explanation, I tend to fall back on its science fiction. Yes, yes. Well, there are many definitions. In fact, there's not one, just one definition for science fiction. um, I've, I've asked four people, or I will ask four people, in the course of this series uh, today, that same question, I'll probably get different answers from everyone. Yeah. And what you're just describing is what's called hard science fiction, right? Something that is really scientifically plausible. Sure, sure. The stuff, that, the stuff that people that don't call it sci-fi read. Exactly, exactly. So what, what first hooked you on science fiction? What, was it a book, a movie, a television series? What was it that originally drew you in? Um... I have, like, very, very early memories of, um, you know, the black and white TV that was on the rickety little rolling stand thing. Yes. would get rolled into my parents' bedroom. As do I. And, uh, you know, the kids would all be sitting on the bed watching Star Trek uh, when it came on on Sunday nights or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I also remember watching um, Apollo launches Mm -hmm. uh, on that old TV. And And I would have been... Five or six years old. I'm sure you watched Twilight Zone as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and The Outer Limits. The Outer Limits. Yes. We have control of the horizontal. <laughs> we have control of the vertical. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, that brings back a lot of memories. Yeah. yeah. But I think, my, I think the very first book I ever read, and uh, I was really encouraged to read because my mother was an avid Agatha Christie reader. Oh. Uh, she always had an Agatha Christie book going. And... Um, uh, I think the very first book I read was a, a science fiction novel about a dystopian future where the planet is covered in ice. I think it was for a young adult. Uh, I could never remember the name of it. And it's a bunch of uh, young adult kids in the, in the frozen, you know, under the ice uh, survivor city of New York, which is run like a totalitarian government. And they have somehow gotten um, uh, wireless communication with the community in Britain. So they, they're going to escape New York and cross the ice to England. That was the first book I ever read. A post-apocalyptic yeah. novel. Yeah. That sounds very interesting, actually. Mm-hmm. I wish I could remember uh, what the title was. If in the course of this interview, 
this conversation, you remember it, just pipe right up and say, oh, I got it. Okay. This is the title because I'm yeah. sure our listeners will be interested in that. I am. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. That is very interesting. Um, you know, science fiction is, is one of the most widespread and, and universal and influential genres. Why do you think it's so popular? Well, because I think it, it generally, usually, I think the parts that are the most popular are the ones that put a positive outlook, a hopeful outlook um, on a future that's far enough away that, you know, it can contain everything that we dream of. I think that's what the big appeal of science fiction is. It's kind of the same appeal that fantasy has for people, except, you know, some people need it to be a little more pragmatic to really uh, get lost in it. It can either reflect, uh, I suppose, a, a, an ideal future or a dystopian nightmare. It could, but even dystopian nightmares, you know, where the, uh, the story is always about survival, mm -hmm. has a lot of appeal because, you know, in people's stressful lives, if everything they had to stress about got reduced to one thing, right. survive, uh, it's a kind of a simpler life to lead. And it has a little bit of an appeal in that way, I think. It limits your choices so drastically. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, people have option paralysis these days and it's ruining their lives. Yeah, exactly. You know, analysis paralysis, just too many, too many choices I can make. My God, will somebody make this simpler for me? <laughs> Even if it's a catastrophe, right? <laughs> well, it, it, might, it might be an out there theory, but it's my theory. Yeah, well, so you stick with it. All right. Uh, so I know you're interested in classic science fiction. Yes. So, so what do you think the fundamental difference is between the science fiction we have today and the classic science fiction? Well, I think the classic science fiction, um, it was really pragmatic. Um, it was fairly simple. It was, you know, the 50s kind of uh, science was rockets and atomic energy and all that kind of stuff. And so it, it, it kind of came from a somewhat simpler world, even though to the people living in it, it was a confusing, mm. uh, brave new world. Um, but I think the authors, um, sometimes it's just more about the story mm -hmm. in, uh, in the golden age stuff uh, than the, the environment or uh, I, I just find in some newer uh, science fiction that I've read, it can sometimes seem like the premise is what the story is all about instead of the characters. I just felt like there's good, better Good writing, good characterization, yeah. good plot, and rigorous science in many cases. Yes, that's a big part of it. Um, with, you know, uh, notable exceptions like Philip K. Dick, who is, uh, you know, generally considered part of that golden age of science fiction, mm -hmm. but had nothing. He was not at all interested in expressing any kind of legitimate science-y ideas in mm. his books. I mean, and he does so very, uh, there's a book called Ubik by, uh, you know, he calls flying cars flippers or flippers or whatever. Okay. And uh, in one of his books, Ubik, uh, the lawyer's typical lawyer, lawyerly dress is a uh, herringbone tweed toga with a propeller beanie and little, uh, you know, elf <laughs> shoes. This is what he, you know, so he's sort of even making fun of his own non-science approach to it. But it was almost like a psychological science that he, uh, that he explored in his stories instead. Consciously campy, a little bit campy, consciously. Yeah, yeah. But, but the story is always very dark. Yeah. 
So, you know, it's and not that's, bad that's humor, a, that, it's, that's uh, another, it's satire. That's another uh, subgenre of science fiction, the uh, noir. Yes. Noir science fiction. Um, so, I, I know your favorite science fiction writers. Uh, how about Ray Bradbury? I, I read a lot of... Big Bradbury. fan of Ray Bradbury. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I've read pr- almost all of what uh, Bradbury's written. But, yeah, to me, uh, Bradbury... Uh, was a, a favorite of a different kind growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, Cliff Simak would be in the same category for me. Um, great stories, uh, but often taking place in this, you know, bucolic American small town atmosphere. Something wicked this way comes. Yeah. Yeah. By the pricking of my thumbs. Yeah, yes. Exactly. <clears throat> I yeah. Love that. That's a great example. Um, and he did a lot of stories in that sort of small town Americana, which is, I guess, not his, <clears throat> you know, uh, his more science fiction stuff. But even the science fiction stuff was more poetic than uh, Yeah, science. it was very, very much more literary. Yes. His work. And yeah, yeah. the Martian and, and, Chronicles, though, I loved. And I love, you know, Martian Chronicles for me fits in nicely with Heinlein because uh, Heinlein deals a lot with the Martians. But he right. takes it from one particular, you know, pragmatic way. Right. Where you don't really know who the ancient Martians were, you could go to Bradbury for what the ancient ancient Martians were like. And do you do you remember um, one short story of his called "The Martian" um, about a, a couple on Mars who have lost their son? Yes. And then one day, suddenly, the son reappears, but the son's dead. But the son, whom they accept, because he's such a comfort, turns out to be a Martian who is a shapeshifter. Mm-hmm. And who accommodates? This is in the Martian Chronicles, wasn't it? I believe yeah. it was. Who uh, accommodates his uh, whoever is with uh, their desires? Mm-hmm. And when they make the mistake of taking the Martian into the local town, everyone there sees what they want to see. Right. In this Martian, yeah, must be exhausting and, and, for him. Well, he di- <laughs> he died because of it. It overstressed the poor thing, and he died. But yes, I love Bradbury as well. So. Do you have a favorite science fiction book, one that you seem to go back to? Um, probably the uh, one I've gone back to the most is Starship Troopers by Heinlein. Ah. But, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, uh, I'm an easy-to-please person. I, I can read the same book over and over. And I've, uh, you know, I've read uh, Asimov's Foundation trilogy a few times and... Um, you know, I, I, I can easily reread uh, Phil Dick stories and Bradbury stories. So I've kind of the older I've gotten, the more instead of going forward, I've just kind of folded back on myself and just like a like a tumble dryer. I'm going through my collection and just rereading it. Well, I re- remember that question was asked uh, of uh, Truman Capote. And he says, I don't do much reading these days. I do rereading. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. You get cantankerous and you're like, hey, I want to just read something I know I'm going to enjoy. <laughs> And see new things in it every time. Exactly. Every time. Yeah. Um, so what do you think of the relationship between science fiction and culture? And, and in, in particular, it's predictive power because since you grew up in the classic mm-hmm. science fiction, you, you well know a lot of things that were projected that mm-hmm. we now have. Yeah. So would you like to comment on that? Well, I think Heinlein was particularly good at being prophetic as well as Asimov. But, uh, you know, in terms of our daily lives, 
Well, I mean, Heinlein had certain things named after him way back in the 60s. Mm. Um, the uh, the uh, manipulator arms that scientists use when they're, you know, looking 10 feet away at a specimen in another room and they can manipulate these mandibles that can come down. Those are called Waldos yeah. in the scientific community. And they come from Heinlein's story, Waldo, where, uh, you know, a, a, um, a handicapped genius billionaire lives in a space station above uh, Earth and he he he's too weak to do things, but he manipulates and creates things with these mechanized arms that he's invented. And Carl Sagan's contact has such a, a person that exactly that, who was in the space station. Yeah, exactly. Very interesting. You know, Carl Sagan said that that he became interested in science through science fiction. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Barsoom. That, that's that's what his, he looks. He liked some of the uh, uh, Sagan liked some of the uh, so the edgy stuff. The uh, the uh, John all, Carter of Mars and exactly and Edgar Rice Burroughs. Yes, I read Burroughs as a kid. Yeah, good it, author. Like uh, you know, um, t- I read a bunch of Tarzan books. So by did Edgar I. Rice Burroughs, and it you know Journey Tarzan the, wasn't really my thing. Yeah, but what an I engaging writer. I read a writer. lot of Tarzan. You know? Yeah. The writing has so much to do with it for me in, yeah. in that era because, uh, you know, I, I kind of really wound down soon after the Golden Age. So for me, the, the new kids on the scene that I read, and they were okay, but I didn't go on, were like William Gibson and Spider Robinson and um, uh, Orson Scott Card. Those to me were the new writers, and they were pretty good too, but... You know, nobody can talk for four pages about how a spacesuit works like Robert Heinlein can and make it riveting. <laughs> well, and make, make it so believable. Exactly. It's utterly believable. Every detail. Now, you, you mentioned a few books um, in a previous email I, I, I took a look at, and a few authors, rather. So Robert Heinlein, we've already talked about, Isaac Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke. Is there one book of any of these authors in particular you would like to talk about? Um, Heinlein, Asimov, Clarke. Well. Uh, you don't have to limit yourself to one. Oh, okay. I know, no. I, I, yeah. I, uh, I, uh, At this um, point, we start talking about yes. what you in particular are interested in. Okay, well. The thing that I've one of my favorite books, and mm. it, I don't know why it didn't pop into my mind when you were asking, was Heinlein's The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Oh, yes. It's such a tour de force uh, book, and it's so packed, like Starship Troopers, mm. so packed with uh, Heinlein's libertarian uh, philosophies, uh, whatever they were. I mean, you, you know, he was definitely libertarian, but you didn't really know exactly what kind of libertarian he, he was. And I understand it changed every time he got married. Um, but those they're, real they're, ideas they're, of the independent, uh, you know, independence and self-sufficiency, those two books are where he really, uh, the, you really get that sense. The of moon violence. colonist revolt, the, the loonies. Exactly. The loonies, it's, it's, yes. They use it, it's like Australia. They use yeah. it as a prison colony. And um, eventually the prisoners revolt and uh, want to have autonomy in their own society. And it's the story of the, um, you know, the, the bluff war that they had to have with, uh, with uh, the Terran government uh, that they ultimately win. It's a great story. Um, and it's still a great story because if anybody is a fan of the television show um, The Expanse, Mm-hmm. Especially in first season of The Expanse, where a lot of 
the solar system is really being established. It's like the establishing season. There's so much influence from The Moon is a Harsh Mistress and other Heinlein novels in that. The whole Belties, the, uh, the settlers who live in the belt, and they're being exploited by the rest of the system as basically laborers and workers. Um, you know, they're a mishmash, just like, uh, you know, in The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, there's deportees from all over Terra. So, uh, you know, the, the, the lunar language is like a mishmash of a bunch of different languages. The main character uh, talks a lot in Russian. Um, you know, everybody calls each other Gospodin and uh, Tavarich uh, yes. on the moon. So, and so, they did that exact same thing uh, in The Expanse with the, uh, with the asteroid belt dwellers. And then Mars is trying to get its autonomy in that TV series. And a lot of the Martian, you know, uh, independence and, uh, you know, uh, freedom is something you have to fight for kind of stuff. It's so Heinlein, their attitude, the Martian attitude in that television program. So it's really nice for me to see, you know, I feel kind of vindicated that I stuck in the golden era <laughs> because they're still mining it. That's true. That's true. There, there's such a strong relationship between um, not the novel and uh, popular culture, movies. Uh, one of the questions I asked in previous interviews was, do you think that movies will ultimately displace novels? Or is the written word here to stay? I think the written word is here to stay, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, and you only have to ask every person who was disappointed by, uh, you know, the film made of the book. Well, it wasn't the way they imagined it. No. Well, the way that, they imagined it was far more pleasing to them, and that's always going to be true of the written word. That is a point that was brought up, I think, with um, with Mari, uh, one with Mari Fulcher, whom I interviewed just 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 before before you. Uh, she brought up the point of the imagination, mm -hmm. and um, I responded, "Yes, true. Remember the old radio plays?" Yes. When they turned the radio series into a television series, it was flat. Yes. Because your imagination is yeah, always better. Yeah. It's always better. Yeah. I remember listening to those old radio shows. I mean, obviously not when they first came out, but, they, you know, uh, Q107 used to do that uh, every Sunday night, you know. What evil lurks in, in the, the hearts, hearts of, of men, men. the <laughs> shadow knows. The shadow. <laughs> Did you ever listen to X-1? Uh, no. That, that was a science fiction uh, radio show. And that was that was really good. Oh yeah. Oh yeah 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 yeah. yeah. I might have one. actually. Yeah. I just I just if I ever saw it written, I just thought it was X one. <laughs> but probably you'll find it on YouTube. It's you know you oh, go to YouTube and find just about anything you mm. want to find. Um, I you know one one of the um, books I spoke about earlier today uh, was um, Mary Shelley's mm -hmm. Frankenstein. And the nature of um, the creature. And uh, the nature of being human. What, what constitutes a human? Mm -hmm. uh, at what point, for example, does AI become self-aware mm -hmm. and has to be granted sentient status? Mm -hmm. And one of the uh, authors, Philip Dick, you mentioned, wrote... Blade Runner. Yes. It was also a title. Androids Dream of Electric, Electric Sheep. Sheep. I like to think of it as. And there's a replicant in there. Mm -hmm. Roy. Roy Blatty. Batty. Batty. Sorry. Roy Batty. That was a Batty thing to say. <laughs> uh, Roy Batty, 
who, um, who is basically in search of his creator and why he wants more life. Mm-hmm. He has approximately, what, a four-year lifespan. He's yeah. a little over three years old. So he's searching for his creator. But interestingly, who, but, none of that is in the book. Hmm. All right, so I'm I'm referencing the film, which mm-hmm. I th- I thought was was fascinating. Interesting so, side note on Philip K. Dick, and perhaps this is the reason. Mm. When Blade Runner was released, uh, Phil Dick was uh, single, um, fairly penniless, and working in one of his ex-wives' uh, jewelry sh- store uh, shops to make money. And they offered him four hundred thousand dollars American to write a novelization of the film. And he said no. Uh, instead, he took a $17,000 advance from Daw, I think it was, um, to write a book uh, about um, this, I can't remember his name, but a, a famous kind of very um, liberal-thinking California bishop. Uh, um I can't remember what the actual bishop's name, but the book he wrote was The Transmigration of Timothy Archer. Um, and Timothy Archer is a religious man in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I always had this great respect for Phil Dick that he was like, uh, okay, I'm not going to write, I don't like what you did to my novel. Um, and I'm, even though I'm penniless, I'm just going to take 17 grand. And so he didn't like Blade Runner. I don't think, uh, I don't think he ever... Uh, I don't think he lived long enough to actually see the final theatrical release. Um, I got the impression from stories I'd read that he was enthusiastic at the beginning, but when it started to come together in the editing and stuff like that, um, you know, in parts he wasn't present for, you know, I think he started to see how they changed the story. So I don't think he liked it in the end. So, and obviously he's, you know, why if he liked it, why would he say no to... Uh, so the replicant character... In his novel, mm-hmm. was different in what way? Well, um, uh, they were escaped um, uh, androids from you know yes. off world, and um, and and uh, uh, you know the main character's uh, job is to to retire them, but it's very different um, uh, and. Um, you know the character of Pris, yes, and the character of um, uh, not Zora, but uh, oh, Pris and um, and uh, the android uh, played by um, you know with the uh, the turned up hair, uh, Rachel, Rachel yeah. and Pris in the book they're the identical model, and it's a real um, uh, it's a real problem for him. But really, the the book is really more just a police story. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't really go to any dramatic conclusion like the uh, the film does. Uh, the book really um, goes on more and more about uh, Deckard's depression with his life, and um, um, in the in the end, um, the main area the story is going, and it it rolls. I know this has been sort of circuitous, but it rolls back to what you were saying about uh, the Frankenstein monster. Yes, is that. Uh, um, a main thread of the book is this religion called Mercerism. It's never really described fully, but humans basically follow it, and it has to do, um, 
you know, you put your hands on the handle of this empathy box. Oh, my goodness. Scientology? <laughs> well, the whole point is the only thing humans have left is that the androids can't empathize, mm. but humans can. Oh, and I see. The I only see thing saying, the yeah. humans have yeah. to define their humanity um, because the, the androids are superior in every way yes. to humanity, and humanity has to just cling to empathy as, and the you know, androids are fearless. Well, yeah, but the the, 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 the difference in the book is the androids are actually better people than the mm -hmm. humans. The mm -hmm. humans are all preoccupied with, um, you know, status. And that's why it's called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Because it's a status symbol in this dying earth uh, to own and take care of a live animal. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people can't afford a live animal. So they have robot animals, and they try and fake to their neighbors that they have the same status, but their animal that they're taking care of is a robot, but their neighbors don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, it's one of these things that people know. And, and, uh, and Deckard's uh, dream is to, uh, is to own a real animal. But, he, you know, he can only afford uh, – he, he can't afford anything. And there's a point in the book where he finds a frog – uh, and I won't tell you anything after that because that'll spoil the story for you if uh, if you haven't re read Drandroid's Dream of Life. And we sheep. wouldn't want to do that, no, would we? No. <laughs> but uh, I just found it so reminiscent of uh, Scientology auditing, holding on to the handles yeah. and being asked a series of questions. Well, Dick would have been down yeah. in that sort of Berkeley world of Scientology yeah. and stuff like that. And I think th this is the kind of thing I love about Dick is this kind of satire. He makes the things intentionally silly. Mm -hmm. in a dark story uh, in order to satire the people that he's really criticizing in this dark story. So the Roy character in the novel is not in search of his manufacturer <clears throat> slash creator. No. Um, really, it sort of comes out that the androids are actually mostly in control of Earth. Mm -hmm. uh, the humans turn out by the end of the book to be, you realize they're, they're really quite pathetic and their time has come and gone. And it turns – because it turns out at the end of the book – well, no, I can't say. <laughs> no, again, another spoiler. Another spoiler. But um, uh, I previously mentioned as well uh, um, uh, Stephen Hawking's uh, trepidation about AI mm -hmm. and possible replacement because he says, okay, uh, AI creatures can evolve so quickly. I want to be the first to officially to welcome our computer overlords. <laughs> I'm sure that will serve you well. Ingratiate me to them. <laughs> and it's true. I mean, once they start manufacturing themselves, mm -hmm. designing themselves, coming up with new generations, um, they can evolve very quickly indeed. Mm -hmm. um, but also Hawking is the, the um, also expressed some... Um, some reservations about uh, seeking extraterrestrial life because why would we give away our position? Well, we've he, given he, away our position, he, I think. He, he said, he said <laughs> it, it didn't work out too well for the uh, North American aboriginals, did it? No, <laughs> you know, no, right? no. Well, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's, th those are kind of valid concerns, but I almost think it's like Pascal's wager. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's like you can't really... Uh, you know, the only way it really is like Pascal's wager is uh, you can't really uh, hedge your bets. You've just got to go forward and hope for the best. Well, that's right. 
precursive faith, William James would call it. Precursive faith. Precursive faith. Honoree, sometimes you have to act without evidence. Yes. It's necessary. In order to yeah. advance. If you're an evidentialist, you wait for all the evidence, but sometimes the evidence never comes in. You know, you spend your life waiting to have enough evidence in order to act, right? Yes. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, if you're waiting for evidence of extraterrestrials, that could be a very long time. Yes, indeed. Now, I know you've probably read a lot of Asimov. You've already yes. mentioned him. I find him to be a fascinating character. This is a guy who wrote over 500 books. Yes. A lot of them were textbooks, though, and you can tell that in his fiction. <laughs> well, I, I read one of his books on algebra. Oh, yeah. And it was still, it was very entertaining. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even... I, I find Asimov very readable and very entertaining. And one of the things I like about reading Asimov is, uh, like Clark, but I like Asimov better for this, it's quaint, nostalgic uh, prosaic form. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's uh, it's like a Bostonian accent from the Hollywood movies. That's the way Asimov, in my mind, writes. It's very proper and very, you know, of, a, of an earlier generation, I guess, or something. Well, and his background was science. Mm-hmm. He was a science teacher, I yeah. believe chemistry. I believe he was a biochemist. I'm not sure. But I, I, th- I think he was. I think it was chemistry. And um, even back in 1983, he, he wrote a column and I, I wish I brought it with me. I forgot all about it. Um, in which he was uh, this whole idea of resenting experts. Oh, yes. And at one point he said, the attitude now is my ignorance is as good as your expertise. Yes, yes, yes. Well, and, like, you, and we, and we see a lot of that need these to days. bring it because that's a Facebook <laughs> meme that's come through my uh, screen more than once. Yeah, and that's, that's Asimov. He was writing about it then, that people mistrust knowledge. Yeah. They were mistrust science. They were mistrust, mistrusting science even then. Well, I think, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the superstitious, you know, interpret the world by feel instinct, which is mm-hmm. all we had at the beginning, yeah. is strong. Yeah. And, you know, uh, and then I, I think people put too uh, high a standard on science to solve all answers that uh, they want solved that way and uh, revert to superstition when... Uh, you know, when it's not working for them. So, yeah, I agree that, you know, science and critical thinking, you know, uh, it's like they say about freedom. It's something they have to constantly fight for because our instinct is towards pattern recognition, which is not, you know, know, we're deeply programmed for pattern recognition. But pattern recognition is the, is the, uh, is a, it can be the enemy of, of critical thinking. Yes, it's 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 a survival default. Exactly. You know, I think Richard Dawkins mentions, you know, if you're on the savanna, the African savanna, and uh, the grass is moving, it could be the wind or it could be a predator. Yes. But the default is to say it's a predator run. Yes, yes. <laughs> right. Which works fine when you're at that intellectual level and societal level, but it's like childhood defense mechanisms. As we grow as a species, those old childhood defense mechanisms that kept us safe can screw everything up. Now, see, and this is one of the reasons I I do love science fiction and speculative uh, writing, um, a novel of ideas, because it it helps define who we are as a species. Yes. I mean, just this conversation, what does it mean to be human? And that, once again, takes, a, takes me back to, to AI uh, and what, it, what will be our responsibilities if we do have human cloning. 
Mm. What will be our responsibility toward those clones? Yeah. Uh, will we grant them personhood? Will they, in fact, have personhood? What happens when, uh, when uh, something we create passes the Turing test? Yeah. You know, the, th the interesting thing is I think you can, you know, you're not limited to science fiction necessarily to tell those kinds of stories. Mm. But sci uh, science fiction does it directly and pragmatically. Uh, absolutely. And in the context, context of a good story. Yeah. And That's what I like about science fiction. It tells me what to think about instead of me having to think about figuring out what the book is telling me I should be thinking about. <laughs> if you can follow that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, of, the, of your other authors, at this point, this is in your hands, this interview. What else would you like to talk about? Is there anything, any other book You've been thinking. I noticed you brought you brought a copy. Of, was this Highland you brought with you? Yeah, this is Starship Troopers. Starship Troopers is a book that uh, I can. You know, it's one of those books I could read. You know, every year and a half. Now, is there any new book that you have in mind that you would like to read that has caught your attention? Um, I, I, nothing specifically. There have been a couple of things that people have mentioned recently that I thought, hmm, that sounds interesting. I might check that out. Uh, but uh, but right now I'm enjoying, um, you know, a, a fairly long run of uh, a nostalgic revisiting of my youth uh, with the old stuff. So that's where I'm at right now. But I can't believe I didn't put Frank Herbert on that list either. Ah, I was about to mention Dune. Yeah. Because that's another story of uh, colonies rebelling. Yes. Right? A uh, story of, of of colonization, but instead of on the, on this planet one continent colonizing another, we've got one planet central authority colonizing a distant world. Yes, yes. and even more a story about the politics mm -hmm. behind that on the level of the colonizers. Yeah, it's really more a story about uh, you know the wealthy fighting over things than it is about uh, about a, a conquest of a, a world. Spe specifically, what is the spice called? Melange? It's the melange, yes. The melange. You know, uh, here, here's another and it's, thing. And it's, it's, uh, uh, its basic value, which is uh, immeasurable, is it's the only um, substance that the uh, guild navigators who have evolved into these, uh, you know, unusual creatures, but they use the spice so that they can uh, have prescient knowledge of the future, and it's the only thing that allows them to navigate their ships between stars. So the entire human economy and everything in the book relies on this one commodity, which is very specifically located, and uh, it turns out fragile. Yes. And, the, and the fight of all of the different seats of power to try and gain control of that one commodity. Now, that is a familiar uh, pattern in, in human societies, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. You know, until the Middle Ages, uh, Europe did not even have pepper until it was imported. It did not have coffee. And when coffee came in from the, from the Middle East, it was so good that the church banned it. They called it the devil's drink, <laughs> which, of course, made it all the more interesting. Well, of course. Whenever you put a prohibition on something, its value suddenly skyrockets. Oh, well, I'll tell you, this has been a fascinating um, uh, interview, conversation. 
I've truly enjoyed it. Me too. I hope you have uh, as, as much as I have as well. And, and before we go, think, is there anything more you'd like to talk about or have we pretty well covered everything you, you wanted to say? I think we've pretty much covered everything I wanted to say. Um, yeah. All right. Well, thank you very, very much for being with us. And thank you for your contribution today. My pleasure. And uh, for perhaps books in the future you'd like to read, listen to our other guests. And yes. you, might, you might get some ideas. That's uh, excellent. Well, I, you know, I, I take the recommendations of my colleagues here at the CNIB very seriously. And I'm sure our listeners... Uh, having heard you, will re-explore or explore the classic genre of science fiction. I hope so. Thank you very much. For more CNIB Foundation podcasts, visit cnib.ca slash podcasts.